If you have your Bible, turn with me to Judges chapter 13. This is the last RUF large group for the semester. However, we will have our Christmas party again, just a reminder, a week from today at 7 o'clock. So it's the same day as large group, just an hour earlier, and it'll be in Beeson in the underground. We have uh, covered a lot of ground. It's hard to believe the semester is over, um, and it's been a really good semester. God has done a lot in our midst, and I'm very thankful. And we have, if you've been coming to our large group, you know that we've been looking at how all of Scripture points us to Jesus. Uh, the Bible is about Him. He is the hero of the Bible. And we have been looking at how uh, different passages and how they point us forward uh, to Christ. Tonight we're going to continue with that and end our series in this semester by looking at Judges 13. And we're going to look at Samson. We're only going to look at these first five verses, however. So if you have your Bible, follow along with me as I read Judges 13, 1 through 5. This is God's Word. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the the hand of the Philistines for forty years. There was a certain man named Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manona. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren. And have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Let me pray. Father, uh, we need your help to interpret your word. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and teach us uh, about this passage. Show us our own heart and our own need for you, but also show us Jesus. We desperately need him uh, tonight. Would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen. Um, I'll start with a question, of, and the question is this. Have you ever enjoyed something so much, even though it was making you sick, you refused to give it up? Have you ever enjoyed something so much that you didn't want to give it up, even, even though you knew it was making you sick? A few years ago, I did a youth retreat in Mississippi. I was with my wife, Susie, actually went on the trip, and Kate. We didn't have Elizabeth uh, and Ann Wright at the time, and we're at this youth retreat, and Kate is starting to get a little bit uh, fussy. She's starting to get fussy and kind of misbehaving a little bit, and we're in this conference room, and it's a Saturday, and you know, the, we have this whole afternoon free, but it's cold out, so we're in this conference room and we're playing games with the youth. Well, 
we decide to do something, and some of you that know our children will not believe this, but we're going to do something that we've really never done much of at that point in Kate's life. She's probably around two. And we were going to give her some juice. We hadn't really, believe it or not, given her much sugar or juice. We were trying to be good parents. And some of you that know our kids cannot believe I just said that because they get sugar and juice all the time now. Um, But we did it in Kate. So we put juice in her sippy cup and she drinks and drinks. And she's really loving it, right? Except about 30 minutes later, we're sitting at the table and she pukes all over the table right there there's all these youth around from this youth group and guess what she wanted right after that she wanted more juice right she refused to give up the thing that was actually making her sick and in a similar way sometimes we don't want to give up the thing that is making us sick either. We don't actually want to be delivered from it. Let me get more specific. Oftentimes, we love our sin so much that we really, deep down in our hearts, don't want to be free from it. That's exactly what was going on in our passage tonight with Israel. Israel loved their sin so much that they don't even want to be delivered from it. However, we see something astounding in Judges 13, and that is this passage shows us something about God. It shows us who He is and what His character is like. And it shows that in His amazing grace, God provides a deliverer for people who don't even want to be delivered. We see three things about God in this passage. First of all, we see the grace that he gives. If you have an outline, you can follow along. Look at verse 1. If you've read any of the book of Judges, you know that this cycle is notably different than all the other cycles in the book of Judges. What I mean by cycle is if you look through the book of Judges, we see this kind of like a broken record over and over. The Israelites, God's people, fall into sin. God sends an oppressor to come and oppress them. They finally do what? Repent, cry out, say, help us. We don't want to live like this. And they repent and turn back to God. And then they have a time of peace And then they fall right back into the cycle after God sends a deliverer to deliver them. They have a time of peace. Then they fall right back in. And we see that over and over and over. That's the pattern of the book of Judges. Except now. This time it's different. Look at verse 1. They don't even cry out at this point. The people of God have hit an all-time low. They don't even want to be delivered at this point in the book of Judges. Flip over to chapter 15. It makes it even clearer. Judges 15, 11, and 12. At this point, God has raised up Samson to deliver the Israelites... 
And in looking 15, verses 11 and 12, the people, Israelites, are surrounding Samson, trying to give him over to the Philistines. Samson's trying to deliver them, and the Israelites are saying, trying to give him over so that they will take him and kill him. They are trying to stop anyone that was trying to deliver them. That's the picture. And then look at this other phrase in verse 1. I want you to notice it says, They did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. The author here is making a point that what the Israelites had done was not, it was evil in the eyes of the Lord, but it was not evil in whose eyes? Their eyes. You see, in other words, by their perceptions, their behavior was perfectly acceptable. This passage teaches us something about sin, doesn't it? And the first thing it teaches us is this, by way of application. What we learn is that sin is not ultimately the violation of your conscience. It's not a violation of your standards or your friend's standards or the culture's standards. But sin is a violation against God. It is against Him. And look, I know that flies in the face of our culture. And it flies in the face of what you experience day in and day out in the world because our world says no. Sin is what, and sin and right and wrong is defined by whatever you want it to be. You are the standard. How often do we hear or do you say something like this? Well, I don't really, I mean, I know it's not the best thing for me to be doing, but really not that bad. I mean, I don't really feel that convicted about it, Jason. Or you might say something like, there's a lot of people doing this, you know, and it's not as bad as what I could be doing. You see, just like the Israelites, we have this tendency to justify all kinds of things that are evil in the sight of God. Secondly, we learn something else about sin. It deceives us, doesn't it? Doesn't it? We, there's this deceitfulness that comes along with sin and it actually numbs us and keeps us from seeing the world rightly. There, uh, you might be aware of how they hunt, the Eskimos hunt wolves. If you've ever heard, you know this story, but if not, here it is. Eskimos, when they hunt wolves, they get a double-bladed knife and they make it razor sharp on both sides. And then they take like an animal's blood, like a rabbit uh, or something, the blood of another animal, and they dip the blade in it over and over, and they allow the blood to freeze on the blade of the knife. So the blood is actually caked on to the blade, and you can't see any of the blade whatsoever. And then they take this knife, the handle of it, and they stick it in the ground and they cover up the handle so that all that is sticking out 
is this blade that is caked with animal's blood. And they put it near where they've seen tracks where the wolves are. So that when the wolves pass by, they smell the blood. And they go right over to this blade and they start licking the blood of the blade. They start out at first and they're very cautious. Slowly. Then they start to lick faster and faster. And then they get so disoriented from licking this knife that they can't even tell the difference between their own blood and the blood that is on the blade of the knife. And eventually, they lay down and bleed to death. And in the same way, I want to suggest that we think that we can control sin by just taking a few licks. But in reality, sin, when we lick it, it deceives us. You see, we, and we, it disorients us and keeps us from seeing things rightly and it ends up leading to our own self-destruction. The Israelites thought by engaging in sin that they were actually bringing life to themselves. But in reality, we see that they were actually bringing death and destruction. Here's what I want you to see. Sin wants to destroy you. Sin wants to eat you alive. And every single one of us needs to be on guard tonight against it. Hebrews 3.13 is one of the... I just love this verse because I think it just nails... Uh, our struggle with sin. It says, encourage one another daily so that you will not become hardened by sin's deceitfulness. How do we keep from becoming hardened and deceived by sin? Well, community. You need to be involved in community. You need to be involved in a place where you can come and hear the word preached. So that the word and its power can pierce your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit and convict you of sin. But you also need to have someone involved in your life. You need to have a friend who will love you enough to tell you the truth. To help you know no one's objective about themselves, right? Yes, please say you know that. Yes. No, you're not. <laughs> and you need someone to help you see what you can't see. The sin in your life that you can't see. You need to sit across the table from someone. You've heard me if you've been in RUF very long and say, what do you see in my life that needs to change? Tell me what people say when I'm not around. And that will get you on the road to revealing the things that you need to deal with, your blind spots. We all have them. And it helps us guard against being deceived by sin. Secondly, let's look at the place God begins. Look at verses 2 through 5. We're introduced to Manoah in this uh, portion of Scripture and his wife. And the author points out that Manoah's wife is barren. 
that she can't have children. And it's actually repeated a couple of times in those verses. But then at the end of verse 3, we have good news because the angel comes and tells Manoah, Manoah's wife, that she is going to bear a son, Samson, who is going to deliver Israel. And if you read the scriptures, you see that there's this pattern of barrenness all throughout the Bible. Sarah, right? In anguish over her childlessness. Rebecca, for the first 20 years of her marriage, was without child. Rachel was barren until the Lord opened up her womb and gave her and blessed her with Joseph. And so we need to ask, what does this, the fact that the author is telling us that Samson's mother was barren, why is that an important fact for us to know? That's a natural question. What is it trying to tell us about who God is? Well, first of all, it tells us that God is a God of grace. It tells us that salvation is by grace alone and that it's not dependent upon human effort or performance or achievement. We see in this passage that God brings life out of something that is dead. Life out of death. Life out of barrenness. Out of nothing. And what this means, as far as real practically to you, is it means that salvation has nothing to do with you. It means that we have absolutely nothing to add The Bible says that we're all born spiritually barren, spiritually dead, and the only way that life comes to us is if God comes in and regenerates and opens up and makes our heart alive. If God breathes life into our dead souls, salvation from beginning to end is His work. And so the first thing that verses 2 through 5 show us is that God's deliverance is by grace, not our own ability, our own effort. Then the second thing, look at verses 2 through 5 again. This is another pattern you see throughout Scripture. God works through the lowly. God works through those that aren't respectable or popular. You see, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, fertility was a sign of honor and dignity. And so if you were barren... You had this cloud of shame hanging over you because you couldn't bear children. And so when God comes to Manoah's wife and gives her a child, this shame is lifted and honor and joy are brought to her life. We see that all throughout the scriptures that God works that way. Time and time again, God works and shows his power through those that are weak. So where is the place that God begins? Don't miss this. God begins his work in the midst of weakness, in the midst of brokenness and humility and desperation. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you wonder why there's so little power in your life? Do you wonder why you experience so little of God's power and grace in your life? 
Could it be that you are full of pride? Could it be that you're full of self-sufficiency? Could it be that your life resembles very little a life of brokenness and humility over your sin? Thirdly, let's look at the pattern God follows. Look at verse 5. It's pretty interesting. If you look at this story of Samson, it's unique. This birth of Samson, you don't see it anywhere with any of the other judges. If you read the book, no other judge does it say anything about their birth. And yet, in chapter 13, the author gives us a whole chapter devoted to the birth and the events surrounding Samson's birth. No other judge has this much detail. Again, we need to ask the question, why? Why does the author want us to see this? Why is he making a point? Well, he's making the point because I think he is trying to show us that God's salvation is not a crisis management situation. It's not a crisis management solution where God just off the cuff comes up with a plan for our sin problem. No. God had planned far in advance the solution for our sin. And in this passage, what we see is that, I mean, think about it. God, does, he could have raised up a deliverer that was already, you know, 35, 40 years old, ready to go. But what we see is that God doesn't do that. He actually grows a deliverer up from scratch, out of nothing. And it shows us that before Samson was even born, God had appointed him to deliver Israel. And at just the right time, he raised him up to deliver his people who were stuck in sin and didn't even want to be delivered. And remember Samson's strength? At just the right time, God raises up a deliverer strong enough like Samson who could deliver his people. You see, what Judges 13 shows us is that Israel, at its lowest point, at their lowest point, their only hope was a promise of a baby being born. And you know what? That's our only hope, too. You can't help but see the connections and the similarities between the birth of Jesus and the birth of Samson. Look at verse 5. And Samson was raised up and born, and it says he will what? Begin the deliverance of God's people. But when we get to the New Testament, we see that one was promised to Mary who wouldn't begin the deliverance, but who would complete it and who would die for the sins of the world once and for all. And what we also see is that Samson was raised up at just the right time to deliver a people who were helpless to deliver and help themselves. How much greater then was God's plan to raise up Jesus to save us from our sin? Remember Paul in Romans 5 says, while we were still helpless, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
But he demonstrated his own love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died. Did you catch it? God's grace is so amazing that he reaches down deep and delivers his people who are dead in their sin, who don't even really want to be delivered. He delivers them without any help from anyone else. He does it all in his power, in his strength. That's the gospel. And that's an incredible picture of God's grace that we see in this passage. Let me pray. Father, um, we thank you for your grace and that